Depression, a loving God, and Jesus versus Mithra. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the podcast where I answer questions about, well, really whatever people want to ask me. It's a show about honoring the dignity of curiosity and reducing the shame we have about asking questions that go against kind of the taboos that are in our communities. We're getting back into a new year, getting back on a regular schedule, and I'm so glad you're here. So what do you say? Let's get it started. <laughs> I cracked myself up with that intro. Uh, one, because, boy, I nailed it on the length on the first try. And two, it's hilarious to me to talk about uh, fighting taboo and shame in a big radio voice over <laughs> like a, a pop song, like a pop rock song. It's, I don't know, it, it made me laugh. So maybe it brings a little joy to your day. I hope that it does. Um, I, I don't know if you've noticed, but this is like, I think, the third week in a row with an Ask Science Mike podcast. Uh, <laughs> so things are really looking up in Science Mike land. We've had some uh, folks start uh, in the Liturgist organization. If you're not familiar with the Liturgist, that's another much more po popular podcast that I'm involved in, <clears throat> actually kind of co-founded the organization, I guess. And uh, we've had some professionals come in and help us make that work happen. And then I'm also working with a manager, not only with what I do with the liturgist, but what I do with Science Mike in general. And so the amount of like relief I have felt in the last couple of weeks is almost impossible to explain to you. Um, and I sent you know some of my book off to my publisher, and I thought it was terrible, but my editor said it's not terrible. He actually said kind things about the book. And, uh, you know, before we start answering questions this week, I, I just want to tell you that, um, you know, I'm pretty vulnerable in my work. Uh, and so you probably know a lot of this, but I struggle in my daily life just like anybody else. And my work means so much to me because all of you mean so much to me. And kind of uh, seeing a light at the end of the tunnel on what has seemed like a really tough year with my work um, because of the growth. Uh, you know, we've gotten more popular and things have grown beyond kind of my ability to manage the required workload to get you podcasts regularly and, and appear on stage as, as much as you'd like to see me. Um and my mood has been lifted by having some help. And so I wanted to start by saying, if you're in a place in your life where you're feeling overwhelmed and you're feeling stressed out, there might like be a legitimate reason. And there might not be a way out of feeling overwhelmed and stressed other than reaching out to others for help. I've had people offer to help me and offer me like really good advice on changes I could make for a long time. And I've resisted them consistently, even kind of passive-aggressively fought them. 
uh, on really necessary changes to deal with with the changes in my life from being a public figure. Uh, and maybe there are things in your life that you're resisting as well, where you're getting good advice. Maybe, maybe people are offering to help and uh, you don't want to take them up on it. For me, it was pride. I really thought I knew better than everyone else how to relate to and cope with the community that surrounds Ask Science Mike and the Liturgist podcast. Um, and maybe I'm too quick to turn around my experience to you, uh, my listeners. Uh, maybe all I need to tell you is that for those of you who've been concerned about me because I've been quiet on social media or you've been hearing me go through kind of emotional transitions in recent episodes of the podcasts, things are getting better for me. So if you've been worried about me, uh, I am doing really, really well now. So thank you for your cards and your letters, which by the way, if you want me to see something, um, these days the best way to do that is a card or a letter. If you go to asksciencemike.com, there's a address at the bottom. You can send me things there. I'm not quite as easy to reach electronically anymore. And we'll see if that if that gets overwhelming. <laughs> Someone will have to probably sort through that mail before I see it too. But for now, I'm the one who goes and checks my P.O. box. Uh, so that's a little update on me. Here's another update on something we could do together that I am incredibly over-the-top excited about. Most of the events we do for the liturgist are in churches and a significant portion, probably a little more than half of the events, events I do as science Mike, uh, happen in churches. And some people who listen to these shows, they just can't walk into a church. You just can't do it. I get it. I've had people who came to an ask science Mike live or a liturgist gathering come up to me in tears and talk about how hard it was to be in a church building again, because Many of you have really significant trauma associated with organized religion. So we've been trying to think, like, what would be a liturgist thing we could do that wasn't in a church? I feel like the liturgist gathering is suited really well for church environments. There's no other venues that are set up for that kind of experience. So, you know, Michael Gunger and I put our heads together and we tried to imagine, like, what an event could look like that wasn't in a church. And that wasn't a weekend so that people aren't having to get hotels overnight if it's out of town for them or, you know, arrange childcare over a weekend. A one-night event's just a lot easier to do. And we can sell tickets for a lot lower because it's less expensive to put on a one-night event than it is to put on a weekend event like the Liturgist Gathering. So we're putting together a tour. That tour is called Tabs and Wafers. And uh, we're about to put tickets on sale in uh, two markets, <clears throat> Boulder, Colorado, and Portland, Oregon. Boulder's going to be May 10th, and Portland's going to be May 11th. We will add more dates if these go well. We've never done this. We don't know if people are going to buy tickets or not. Right now, only patrons can buy tickets, but on, um, gosh, March 6th, they will be available uh, for everyone to buy tickets to this event. And uh, that will be just a couple days after this podcast comes out. So March 6, 2019, you can buy tickets to 
the liturgist tour called Tabs and Wafers. Now, what in the heck is it about? Well, we're still working on it, but we're basically wrestling with what reconstruction really looks like, like answering questions instead of just asking them. So we're going to say, you know, um, look into an idea like how can we be open to spirituality without being closed off or dogmatic toward others? How can we embrace where we've been without the ways we've been hurt dragging us down? What does spiritual community look like without organized religion? Now, it's the liturgist. We're not going to answer definitive dogmatic uh, solutions here. That's not what we're talking about. But we are talking about exploring together what spirituality looks like uh, in an existential, (laughs) typical liturgist way of, you know, it'll be high-minded and middle school humor that you've grown to expect from us. Uh, so you can go to theliturgist.com slash events to learn more about the Tabs and Wafers Tour. And check back regularly or sign up for our email list if you want to be notified when other uh, dates get announced. Uh, of course, I will also announce them on the podcast. So that's a lot of announcements, but I thought there was a lot to share. We went through a real period where we weren't talking frequently with each other. And I, it just feels good to be talking to you again on a regular basis. So what do you say? Let's answer some questions. And I think this week uh, we actually have a science question or two. Hey, Science Mike. My name is Eric. Um, I grew up a Southern Baptist in Tallahassee, Florida. So I wouldn't be surprised if our paths crossed um, at one point way back in the day. Um, But I've been listening uh, to you really ever since that first Liturgist podcast came out. Um, and so I've really gone through my faith transition and, um, landed pretty far away from being an evangelical. But that being said, um, um, I'm still surrounded, uh, with a, with a community that is evangelical. Um, and, and a lot of people that, um, really do genuinely love others and, and have great hearts. Um, but obviously believe some things that, that I just don't agree with anymore. Um, and and a, a couple years ago, I had a really really close friend of mine um, come to me and and ask me to pray for him um, because he had these really strong feelings for other men. Um, and so at that point in time, I didn't really know what I believed, and um, just kind of told him, you know, yeah, I'll pray for you, and and that was that. Um, and I've been struggling with and trying to figure out. Um, how to sit down now today and and talk with this friend of mine who believes that 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 he is full of sin because of these feelings that he has um, and so I, I guess my question is what would your advice be for a straight man who is affirming um, talking to and speaking with um, a gay man who is not affirming. Um, Obviously I want to go to him in love and I want to support him. Um, It, it feels odd to sit down and try to convince him of something. Um, So I, I'm just not really sure of, of how to direct that conversation. Um, So if you have any advice, um, obviously I'd, I'd really appreciate it. 
Um, I appreciate everything that you do. Um, and, uh, yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. I've encountered this really quite often where people are publicly and vocally against LGBTQ equality, especially in the church, um, but personally experience same-sex attraction. I've had, I've had many people talk to me about that. Um, and I just have so much empathy for what that must feel like to be trapped between your worldview and the values of your community and your personal experience. I, I actually think it's like one of the most tragic uh, implications of non-affirming theology is the way that it turns people on themselves in addition to leading people to really hurt other people through their actions. Um, that's why uh, non-affirming theology is something I find so troublesome and, and frankly so dangerous. Um, so you're in a really hard situation here. And I would just caution you to be very careful and to be very cautious. There's a lot of psychological stress that your friend is under, uh, a, a chronic stressor here, this, this difference between their value system and their personal experience. There's going to be a lot of built-up emotion there, a lot of fear, a lot of grief. I, I would not personally make any attempt to advocate that this person become affirming um, because I think you're dealing with a lot of other things in the room besides the th theological issue, which, by the way, is always true. People are never talking about LGBTQ affirmation in some intellectual vacuum. There is always an emotional investment and always a social value system at play. Why? Because we're people, and that's true for literally everything we think and do. <clears throat> so I'd just, I'd be really, really, really careful. It sounds to me like you're already publicly supportive of LGBTQ rights and your theology is already affirming. So just keep doing that. Keep standing up for these marginalized voices in religious communities, especially in political policy, especially continue to do that. And as you do, be a good and supportive friend to this person. It's okay. Yeah. If he says something that's that's homophobic or he raises the issue to state plainly that you disagree. Um, I you know, I think that's that's necessary. Um, but other than that, just be a good friend to him. And he'll approach you if he wants to talk about sexuality and ethics and, and theology. Uh, if he does, be very supportive, be very encouraging. Listen a lot. Listen more than you speak. Uh, this is this is a really, really delicate situation. Um, I, I can't imagine a parallel, honestly. I don't think there is the analogy that can describe 
kind of the exquisite emotional pain that someone can go through. Um, I, I've definitely had conversations with people who are in ministry uh, who genuinely and sincerely believe that same-sex relationships and same-sex sexual encounters are a sin who are deeply attracted to members of the same sex and try to rationalize that away. You know, they, they talk about how it's uh, it's the devil, for example, uh, trying to destroy their ministry or destroy their marriage if they're married at all. Um, it's, it is, it is, it is truly tragic and my heart breaks for those people. Uh, and I, I, I expend no effort trying to change their theology and instead tell them that I don't judge them, that I support them, um, that I'll always be their friend. Um, and when those people say things to me, and it definitely happens that are homophobic or discriminatory. Uh, then I tell them that I I don't tolerate that kind of language, and I don't. That's a condition for being my friend. You can believe whatever you want about the Bible. You can believe whatever you want about marriage, but I'm not going to stick around and hear you devalue the lives and experiences of LGBTQ people. I just won't do it. Um, I don't expect people to listen to me talk about evolution <laughs> if they don't. Except the theory of evolution, if someone says I just can't talk about that, that's fine. We don't have to talk about it. Uh, but that's that's a boundary for me. Uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna say derogatory things towards women, towards people of color, towards any marginalized group, disabled people, I'm out. I am out, and I'm not out quietly. I'm going to say something as I walk out. Um. Yeah. So just just be really careful. I love that you're in this person's life and that you're concerned for them. Please continue to do that. Uh, he, he's in a really difficult spot. And um, I think friends like you are probably few and far between in his community. And if he does decide to shift on his theology or his public display of his sexuality, you might be a person that he approaches first. And... Um, it's always important to handle with grace and with dignity uh, anyone who is in the process of coming out or reconciling their sexuality or exploring their sexuality. That's such a vulnerable thing for a person to do. Um, and it sounds like you're on the right track. It sounds like, like you really care for this person. I would just say, once again, be really, really careful. Um, there's a lot of emotional pressure here. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, I'm a Bible-loving Christian who's read your book, listens to your podcast, and wants to stop having questions. However, this one is a doozy. What do we do with the pagan myths that predate Jesus, which have striking similarities to Jesus? Since you're a scholar, I assume I don't have to explain or list all these, but to name a few, Mithra, Krishna, Dionysus, Horus, etc. This is troubling because as I've deconstructed and reevaluated my view of the Bible, the thing that kept me in the Christian club has been Jesus and the resurrection. Is it possible that the Jesus story is to these pagan myths as the creation story is to the Enuma Elish? If so, 
it seems we lost the cornerstone of our faith, don't we? Thanks for any time you can devote to answering this. <clears throat> Gosh. I don't know what Bible-loving Christian means anymore because I'm a Bible-loving Christian. <laughs> um, so I don't want to make any assumptions about you based on that phrase. Uh, I would say if you want to stop having questions, this is a terrible show. <laughs> As this show is all about questions, including yours. It is a great question, and I'm so glad that you submitted it. This is something that uh, I hear a lot about. And it's in a, in the framing of a debate between usually evangelical Christians or more theologically conservative Christians and atheists and skeptics. Uh, if you haven't seen this, there's all these um, images online that show up in religion debate forums that basically point out pieces of, of the biography of, of Jesus as outlined in the four gospels and then compares that to ancient and contemporary or at least contemporary to jesus um religious figures and i have a a tremendous problem with that image i i really do because it's nonsense <laughs> i know you don't expect me to say that but that image and that line of thinking is ridiculous ridiculous it's completely absurd it is not grounded in any historical scholarship which by the way i take exceptions to you calling me a scholar always remember i dropped out of community college after six weeks so <laughs> i'm not a scholar i do i do love learning but i i could not call myself a scholar uh in good faith or good conscience so uh, let's like look. Let's look at Mithra specifically. We don't know anything really about Mithra. Mithra was uh, the deity of a closed cult. They were forbidden to share information about their god with outsiders. What we know about Mithra is from stone carvings that don't have any captions. They're just depictions. So we can make, historians make some assumptions about the theological claims of, of Mithra, but, uh, you know, like I've seen an image that says Mithra was born of a virgin. Well, as we understand it from historical scholarship, Mithra was born from the side of a mountain. And so I guess technically a mountain is a virgin because a mountain has never had sexual intercourse. But that's really stretching <laughs> Really, really stretching uh, the notion. There's another thing. It's it's not uncommon for December 25th to be a day of celebration for deities. But nowhere in the Gospels is December 25th listed as a special time. That's a, that's a church tradition that came later. So the, this idea that the story of Jesus is lifted whole cloth from other ancient deities is ridiculous. It's not true. It's just parts of the Jesus story share commonalities with other ancient deities because the Gospels were a collection of documents that were designed to illustrate the divinity of Christ in a way that was noteworthy and understandable to audiences in the first century. So Jesus 
this is why the debate drives me crazy. Evangelicals pretend that Jesus is this completely unique, singular figure. No one like him ever in history. And that's not true. Resurrection is, of course, a recurring theme for ancient deities. Um, there's a lot of components of the Gospels that are, are basically God marketing from the first century. Uh, but neither is that you can make historical claim that because there's some similarities, which these these Jesus versus Mithra versus Dionysus versus Horus images are wildly overblown and not based on good scholarship. Um, it, it's just, it drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. Most historians accept that Jesus of Nazareth was very likely an actual historical figure. So the kind of Jesus mythicists are not the kind of majority opinion in the academy, even if you exclude church scholarship and you just go with secular institutions, that Jesus was a myth is not a majority view. Of course, though, the idea that Jesus was God is not an idea that is accepted in secular scholarship. He's, he's, he's a historical figure, a very important one that uh, shaped Western civilization in major ways. So if you have concerns about Jesus and the resurrection as depicted in the Gospels, which, by the way, tell pretty different stories, especially John, uh, that should not be because of any similarities that you've seen online about Mithra, Krishna, Dionysus, or Horus. Um, there are other reasons to be skeptical. Um, my podcast is not really about that. Um but there's, of course, if you if you want to if you want to pull on that thread and see how far it goes, it goes quite far indeed. Uh, I will give you a link to Wikipedia of all places about Jesus and comparative methodology on the show notes this week for Ask Science Mike, um, which you can find on AskScienceMike.com. But I try to avoid Wikipedia, but this article is really good. It actually is a good summary of the sources, uh, which you can all are all linked there. You can explore yourself if you want to really dig into this. I am a Christian not because of some like really compelling historical claim that there was a resurrection. Uh, that is definitely a minority opinion <laughs> in the church. Very, 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 very minority. I have no problem being a Christian if it turns out that Jesus was never bodily resurrected. I think there were a lot of first century Christians who 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 maybe like had never even considered a bodily resurrection. Um and to be so obsessed with that, despite some of the writings attributed to Paul, I think is uh I think you miss a lot of the value of the way in which Jesus taught us to approach God and approach others if you're obsessed with the resurrection. Um that's not to say uh I don't like theology based on the resurrection, that I don't contemplate a physically risen Christ. I do. Um, but yeah, unique historical uniqueness is not the feature I'm looking for in my faith experiences in the Christian church. I'm looking for a religion, 
a religion, an organized religion, uh, with lots of scholarship about how to encounter the divine and some way of understanding God and understanding myself through communal practice of faith. That's what I want from the church. That's what I want from Christ. And through Christ, I've had truly beautiful experiences with God to the point that despite my kind of better ideas as a skeptic, I just can't get past that empty tomb. Hey, Science Mike. This is Lauren from Florida. My question is, do you think there are compelling reasons to believe that God is good outside of using the Bible or appealing to personal experience? Um, Or do you have to appeal to the biblical narrative or an experience that you can't explain away in order to get there? So what would you tell somebody who wants to believe that God is good but doesn't know where they stand with the Bible and doesn't have any personal experiences that necessarily point to um, a loving God? Thank you. You sound so thoughtful and intelligent and considered. Um, But in your question, I hear this appeal to like a rigorous and logical understanding of faith. And I just don't, I, I don't have one. And I don't ever try to convince anyone of anything about God. Um, that's, that's not what my life is about. That's not what my work is about. Uh, I'm, just, I'm over that. So I'll go into this because you asked me. Uh, but I want to make sure that the way I'm relaying this is I'm assuming it's you who are asking, that you're not asking me how you could convince someone else because I'm not about convincing other people of things about God. But I will tell you as a friend what I think and how I approach the divine. Um, And I really thought about your question deeply, and I don't have any reason to believe in a loving God that doesn't come down to either my personal experiences or the personal experience of others. Remember, the way that I view the Bible is basically as a catalog of the personal experiences other people have had with God. Uh, So I don't view the Bible as a separate category than personal experience. It's just personal experiences written down, which I don't see as a problem, by the way. I, I love the Bible for that. At this point in my life, my faith is so profoundly personal. It's profoundly, profoundly personal. And so I have trouble with the kinds of heady discussions, the logical, let's demonstrate the validity of fact claims. Let's let's ground things philosophically that people have about God through the lens of like rational analysis or even debate. Anything of that that category dealing with the existence or characteristics of God, like it's just a pass for me now. I mean, I can maybe over a beer, kind of as a as a thought experiment, a game. I'm in. Um, it's just not. It's not where I'm at. But the very last part of your question. So, what would I say? 
you know, to someone who wanted to believe in a loving God, but had trouble because that there's these, there's this lack of evidence is maybe one way to phrase that. I don't know. I don't know how you would say it. And what I would say is let go of the intellectual pursuit of God entirely. And I know, I know that's strange for me to say because it sounds like I'm saying have a blind faith, and that is, believe me, not what I am saying. What I'm saying is how we understand the way that human beings relate to the divine through psychology and through neuroscience is that people don't experience a loving God through an understanding, but through a knowing. And I don't mean... Um, some kind of philosophical truth claim knowing. I mean a knowing like you know your close friends or you know the sunrise. You've experienced something beautiful with your friends and with the sunrise, if you're a morning person. So cultivate practices in your life that have been shown through science to make people feel closer to God, things like regular prayer or meditation, 15 minutes a day, six days a week, for six weeks has been shown to make people feel closer to God. As you meditate or pray, focus on the image of a God that loves you, and that will make a loving God feel more real and closer to you over time. Practice faith with others in some kind of community. I like church. I get it that a lot of people don't. I think church, like a church that's not toxic, um, pastored by a woman, for example, uh, with really bold language about you know being LGBTQ affirming, like printed on the building and in everything they hand out, are usually good signs for me that I'm going to be in a church environment that I'm not going to find toxic. And when I'm in those rooms, when I engage in the liturgy, which is weird at first for me, but the repetition, the practice in community does make God feel closer to us and makes God feel like God is a loving God. Um, it For me, at this point in my life, it's all about practice. It's all about experience, which is why I am a mystic. It doesn't mean my faith is blind or thoughtless. I do have rubrics for evaluating theological claims, primarily through the lens of consent and harm to others. I believe that God is love. That's that's a part of the scriptures uh, that, that through contemplation and through study I have found increasingly resonant over time. Not just that God is loving, but God is love itself. That everywhere there is love, there is God. But I can't, uh, I can't ground that somewhere for you. All I can do is kind of show you the road signs that led me to that place. Moments of stillness and quiet and contemplation where God drew near. Moments of my day and my life where God's love felt apparent, both in wonderful days and terrible days.
I have found God to be a faithful companion through my life. And a dear, dear friend. And it's strange to tell you about a dear friend whose existence I very often doubt myself, at least as some kind of being or personal deity. But I, I can't get away from those, those tremendous moments, those personal experiences that you speak of. Um, I guess I would say of knowing God through personal experience, don't knock it till you've tried it. Our last question this week came in via email, and it reads, Dear Mike, we met at the Liturgist Gathering in London. I've been plagued by the following question for a while now. Do people fully recover or heal from chronic depression? Emphasis on chronic. Some background information. I've struggled with depression my entire life. Recently, I got diagnosed as autistic, which I'm sure plays into this, but doesn't fully explain my neutral, emotionally speaking, isn't neutral, but rather like a four or five out of 10 instead of a six or even a seven. Worse, I easily default to feeling miserable or even suicidal. You've talked about how the brain tends to go there more easily if you've considered suicide or simply had suicidal ideation in the past. I understand situational depression is different and recovery from that is likely slash common. To return to my question, is there scientific evidence of chronic depressed individuals ever truly leaving chronic depression behind without recurrence for a long time or period of life? Thanks so much for any insight you may be able to share. Keep being awesome. I truly admire your work. Well, a couple of things. One um, I, I think the research I was citing said that people who've attempted suicide are more likely to have those recurring thoughts uh, based on some changes in your neurological structures and, 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 and neurochemistry following a suicide attempt. Um, but I, I, I could be wrong. Um, I think more important is to talk about depression. And recurring depression is really common. Even among people who've only experienced depression one time, 20 to 30% say that their symptoms never go away completely. We understand today that depression seems to have genetic components and neurological components, that it's not simply a matter of temperament or circumstance that there's something more fundamental going on. And because of that, what I've seen in the literature and in the language of healthcare providers is that they don't talk about major depression or clinical depression in terms of cures or recovery, but instead in terms of management. And I know that that that's, that's a hard way to think about depression when you're stuck in it. But it, it might be a more helpful framing. That depression, in some way, is a part of you. And it's a part of your life that has to be managed. 
I, I am also an adult with autism, and that is a part of my life that I have to manage and that I often need help managing. And by often, I mean multiple times per day. My wife's out of town right now, and uh, I forgot to eat all day until I uh, started getting lightheaded and <laughs> kind of faint. So I need help managing this ongoing concern, this ongoing health issue, mental health issue, physical health issue. Of course, as an autistic person, I am appreciative of some of the gifts and insights that autism brings to me. And autism is so intrinsically a part of who I am, it's difficult, if not impossible, for me to tell what parts of me come from being autistic. Because I, all of me is autistic. And this is going to sound strange, but I've started to think about depression in a very similar way. Because although I don't have chronic depression, I am prone to repeat situational depression. It is not hard for me to become depressed. So most times I'm actually kind of a sanguine person. I I tend towards positivity. My neutral might be a a 7 or even an 8. But as circumstances change, even just increased stressors or deviations from my routine, my new home base can become a 3 or a 4. I've sometimes wondered if kind of my increased disposition towards depression, despite being kind of a more emotionally positive person, could in fact be related to autism spectrum disorder. And I I do understand that it seems that people with ASD are more likely to experience depression. So my own experiences, which are really the only thing I'm an expert in, with depression and suicidality, have taught me some fairly effective coping skills. As I manage my depression, I use cognitive behavioral therapy whenever I notice my mood is drifting down or that I've gone from feeling down to feeling nothing at all. Those, those truly tough times of depression when, when everything feels, well, just like you're, you're in a fog barely existing at all. In those times, I use cognitive behavioral therapy to notice patterns associated with negative thinking, especially about myself, and interrupt and correct them. So I might think, oh, it's never going to get any better, and life really isn't worth living, and I'll stop, and I'll say, no, that's not true. Life is worth living, and then I might name two or three or four reasons that I'm happy to be alive. I'll name how I feel as well. Sometimes when we feel depressed or anxious, simply naming that helps. Sometimes following that along, I feel depressed because. Now, you're in chronic depression. That might be hard to say. You'd say, well, there's nothing in my life that I feel like is leading to this depression. So you could say, I feel depressed because of how my brain is structured. You might find naming your depression provides some relief. I reach out to trusted friends and family as soon as I notice that I'm entering a period of depression so that I'm not alone as I work through it. I talk to mental health professionals 
and I do my best to act on their recommendations. That is more difficult when you're depressed, but reaching out to friends and families means they support me in that process. They ask me how I'm doing and how my treatment is going. And I open all the blinds in my house and I let the sun in. You might say, well, what does that have to do with anything? I don't know. Just for me, sometimes a little sunlight makes me feel better. Now, here's another thing I'd like you to understand about depression. There's a personality typing system called the Big Five system. And it's one of the few personality systems that has good peer-reviewed science demonstrating its effectiveness and its reproducibility. It places you on several traits, five traits actually, as spectrums. And one of those spectrums is, is effectively negative affect. How prone to negative thoughts and emotions are you? My wife is a person with very high negative affect. And as researchers contemplated and studied negative affect, what they found is people tended to do positive research on positive affect and negative research on negative affect, biasing the research. So some researchers started to look for the positives of negative affect. And they found that those people, people with high negative affect, are here for a reason. They keep our species alive. Positive affect people are easier to fool or deceive. They are not very cautious. And so people with negative affect are the, the watchers, the guardians of their social groups, watching out for potential dangers in a way that the more happy-go-lucky people don't notice. And listen, I don't want to minimize your experience. I've been deeply depressed before, even recently. Take what I'm saying here and what I'm about to say in that light. I believe depression is serious. And I believe depression is part of your brain keeping you alive. You are depressed because in some way, your brain has identified depression as a survival strategy that can help you navigate the world. I am not saying that you should be thankful for your depression or something awful and dismissive like that. What I'm saying is that for me, it helps me to manage my depression when I understand that depression is a survival strategy that for me, Depression is probably related to autism spectrum disorder, to some genetic predispositions, and some pretty dramatic life experiences. Depression has been there at times when my feelings have been too powerful and too overwhelming to directly process and has offered me the space, even in a state of depression, to gain distance from the experiences so that I can ultimately process them safely. I don't know what the recovery rates look like for chronic depression. I couldn't find a consistent answer in literature. 
What I do know is that it seems common among psychologists and mental health professionals to talk about depression in terms of management. And if that sounds like it could be helpful for you, I would talk to your healthcare practitioner about ways to manage your depression. My list may or may not be one that helps you. But I hope, I hope you find that over time, chronic depression is something that doesn't stop or impair you from living a full life or a life with joy or a life with companionship and that you find that when you're honest about your feelings with others, it promotes honesty in them as well. And may chronic depression in your life be a gateway to profound and intimate friendships because those, in my opinion, are part of what makes life worth living in the first place. Well, you've made it through another episode of Ask Science Mike, and I'm so glad you're here. It's good to be back on a regular basis. I don't know if we'll keep the weekly thing going, but I'm at least going to do every other week until I finish this damn book I'm working on. And I want to thank Greg... Nordine for his work on Ask Science Mike. I'd like to thank Andrew Galucky for handling the pre-production on this episode. And of course, I want to thank all of my patrons on Patreon who keep Ask Science Mike going. If you'd like to join them in making this show financially possible, just go to AskScienceMike.com and click on the Patreon icon. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll talk to you next week.